everyone, and welcome back to Moving Right Along, a Muppet Movie podcast brought to you by ToughPigs.com. It's the podcast where we watch The Great Muppet Caper two minutes at a time and talk about it a lot. I'm your host, Anthony Strand. And I'm your other host, Ryan Rowe. And today it's just the two of us. We're, it's, we're, we're going solo or duo or dual today because we are done. This is it. We're down to the end. As Kermit the Frog would say, we're just about down to the end of another one. We're looking at minutes 97 and 98 of The Great Muppet Caper. In these minutes, the credits roll and Gonzo sends us each a copy. I can't believe we're at the end. I know, it's wild. So we start here with Fozzie saying the final and me. And then he looks to the side and says, ah! <laughs> yeah, he's very uh, amused, I guess, to see these closing credits. Right, he, uh, he just loves it. And then uh, the rest, most of the rest of this is just credits. Um, so there's really not a lot of Muppets in these minutes, but it's, it is nice to see our old pal Fozzie at the beginning. True. And then, of course, uh, we end, I'll skip, I'll skip to the end to talk about the other uh, M- Muppet that we see here. I think every listener knows who it is. It's Gonzo, who comes down at the end and yells, wait a minute, wait, hold it right there. Don't go home yet. Say cheese. And then takes a picture and then says, I'll send you each a copy. That's great. It's perfect. It's like of the, th- so each of the original trilogy ends with kind of a tag after the closing credits. Right. And the other two, spoiler, spoiler for Mubba's Take Manhattan, I guess, the other two are both animal. And uh, this one is Gonzo, and it's per- it's my favorite one. It's perfect. It makes me so happy. I actually forget what does animal do in Mubba's Take Manhattan. He says, bye-bye. Oh, yeah, that's not much. We just hear him. We oh, just okay. hear his voice. We, we, we don't see him. Right, yeah. okay. So uh, you'll see that in a year or whatever. So I we've I think we had a, a guest and I don't remember who it was who mentioned that when they were a kid they I think saw this in a the theater and then they really expected Gonzo to send them a copy of the photo. I don't think I ever did that, but I can tell you every time I watch this movie I do say cheese when Gonzo tells me to say cheese. Aha. Uh-huh. Ah, I love that. Yeah. I uh I don't I never have even once. My, that, that's not going to be a very good picture of you. No, it's not. Uh, I, I would guess that Roz probably does. She she's she's more into that kind of interactive viewing than I am. I suppose. <laughs> well, next time you watch it together, you'll you'll have to notice whether she says cheese. Right. I, I will let you know and report back to us. Yes. Yes. So, uh, I mean, really, that's that, that's the entire Muppet content of this. So, um, if, if it's okay with you. I'd like to move on to talking about some of the credits that we see. We're not we're not going to list all of them, but just uh, certain ones that we one or both of us find interesting. You mean you don't want to read every single name in the closing credits? Yeah, that's going to be the rest of this podcast is just reading <laughs> every name in the closing credits. Let's do it. It'll be a two-hour oh, wow. episode with no with no with no context. All right. Um so the thing that jumped out at me most of all just looking over these credits. I I looked up most of the names and we've talked about how this movie was made in conjunction, <laughs> conjunction with the dark crystal. Ah. Yes. This, and this is a good time to remind people too, that this movie wrapped production and they took a six week uh, break and then they immediately started production on the dark crystal, which is crazy. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it must, it's, I mean, I guess it was probably like such a, thrill to be doing such a different project with so many of the same people 
but it really is so like almost all of these people, then their next credit is, is the dark crystal. Like it's, it's the entire crew. It's not just like the lead people. It's most of the crew moved straight from caper to dark crystal. Yeah, pretty much. It did. I, but, but also the other thing that I noticed is so many of these crew members, just, just various ones worked on other movies that were shot at Elstree studios, you know, uh, the star, the first two Star Wars movies, the uh, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, Frank Oz's Little Shop of Horrors. Many of these crew members worked on some or all of those things, which were shot right here at at Elstree Studios. So I wonder if there was of them were just kind of like crew who like were under contract to the studio, you know, and and worked on worked on films shot there. Yeah, I don't know how that works exactly, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like that or just something where they maybe they just happened to live in London and that's where they did most of their work. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I kept seeing those films over and over and over, which I, I which I thought was was noteworthy. Yeah, that's cool. Well, and, and also just like what an exciting few years that must have been to be like you're making Star Wars, you're making <laughs> Superman, you're making the Great Muppet Caper, you know, like yeah, no kidding. Just what what fun to do at work, I think, you know? Yeah, and it, especially to think that these are movies we're still talking about today. That was, that was a great run. Right. Um and then so then the actors are listed who um had small, you know, speaking parts in the movie but aren't the cameo guest stars. And we talked about most of those as they came. You know, we I don't think we need to talk about who who those actors are again. But it did jump out at me that Christine Nelson is credited as girl in park. Uh, J- Jerry Nelson's daughter, who of course says, look daddy a bear. Or yeah. look dad a bear. Yeah, which I guess kind of reinforces the story of that this is how she got her, I guess it was her Screen Actors Guild card. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, her dad, who of course also has a line in that scene, does is not credited here as a human actor. Which I That's, guess he was he's already credited earlier. Yeah, I guess they I guess he chose to remain uncredited for his on screen appearance. Right. Um and then so yeah, we see the actors, we see the the members of the uh Charkies Water Ballet, and then um a couple of people that I did want to mention. Um associate producer Bruce Sharman, um also produced the Dark Crystal also worked as an associate producer on the first two Star Wars movies and worked again with Brian Henson in Return to Oz, where he was yeah. an associate producer. Where was that shot? He's know? 90 years old and he's, that might've been, I mean, I'm sure that was shot in England too. Now that I think about it. Yeah. So he's still around. You say? I mean, it's like he's 90 years old and he's still alive. Wow. Um, but also just the fact that the villains in that movie are Gene Marsh and Nicole Williamson, who are like both worked, almost entirely in England, you know? Mm, yeah, um, that makes sense. Makes me think that it, it must have been shot there, you, you know? Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah. So anyways, that's uh, that's uh, Bruce Sharman. Uh, assistant director Dusty Simons is another person, because again, he worked on Superman 2 and 3, also Richard Lester's The Ritz, also uh, Richard Lester's 3 and 4 Musketeers, hmm. and also A Clockwork Orange. So he was... <laughs> assistant director on a lot of really interesting things. Yeah. Uh, that's and, quite a resume. And yeah. So I don't know. I, you know, again, it, it's one of those names that I would never notice and never think about, but it's fun to look these people up and just see what the connections are. Yeah. 
And I think we may so, have actually mentioned um, this on the show before, but you and I both like Superman 3 more than most people do. Yeah, Superman 3 is fun because Superman acts like he would in a Silver Age comic, like yeah. much more than he does in the first, especially in Superman 2 where he's very petty. But, um, you know, like he freezes a lake and carries it over and melts it on top of a chemical fire with his heat vision. Like that's such a Superman thing to do. Yeah. Exactly. And Richard Pryor wears a giant foam cowboy hat. And he skis off a building. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a great movie. Superman 3. All right. Uh, The other next person I wanted to talk about is uh, Julie Harris, the costume designer, who also has some Richard Lester credits. Uh, She was the costume designer for A Hard Day's Night and Help, the first two Beatles movies. Yeah, that's that's a good. I mean, imagine working with the Beatles and the Muppets in your career, right? Yeah, that's and true. James that's Bond. Awesome. She has a few um, James she Bond also, credits, including both real and fake James Bond. She was the costume designer for the 1967 Casino Royale movie, and and then some of the Roger Moore films as well. Mm-hmm. So that's fun that she went from like the ridiculous spoof Bond movie, you know, with like Woody Allen in it, to uh, real James Bond movies. Yeah, yeah, that that Casino Royale is pretty ridiculous. I've never actually seen it. I've always kind of meant to. I I probably should at some point. It's worth seeing once. Yeah, that sounds right. That that sounds about right. And she uh oh, Ju- Julie Harris, the other one that jumped out at me is that she was the costume designer on Disney's Swiss Family Robinson, a movie that I enjoyed a lot as a child. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time. Is that on Disney Plus? It is on Disney Plus. Oh, I should revisit it. We, should, we both should revisit it and then just talk about it off mic. Okay. Or we could do a, a bonus episode about the Swiss Family Robinson. About Disney's Swiss Family Robinson, sure. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, get, our, uh, we'll get our frequent guest, Matt, uh, Matthew Soberman, on with us. He's a big classic Disney live action guy, too. So. Uh-huh. Perfect. All right. So uh, li- listen for that. Probably never, listeners. No, no. All right. So the next thing is uh, oh oh and speaking of Star Wars and Superman makeup artist Stuart Freeborn yeah who is like legendary for his for his Star Wars makeup was the makeup artist on this that's yeah. so rad I don't think I knew that or had ever noticed that before no me neither like and and that was a name that I recognized immediately like because of the Star Wars connection you know yeah well he helped design. Chewbacca and he designed the look of Yoda which is he has admitted that he partially based Yoda's face on his own face so yeah Stuart Freeborn <laughs> right, right classic he also um maybe my favorite of his credits is that he was the the makeup artist on Top Secret this the movie Zucker Abram Zucker did after Airplane yeah that's a good one um, which has well it has a particular gag where Peter Cushing plays an old man holding a magnifying glass up to his face. And then when he takes the magnifying glass down, he actually just has a giant eyeball that looks magnified. <laughs> right. And so like, that's a joke that works because of Stuart Freeborn, right? Yeah, like, that's, that's like, a great point. If, if the makeup doesn't work, that that joke does not play. And it's, it, it's the best joke in the movie. Yeah. Is that so, also in the scene the where everything is filmed backwards? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same scene. Yeah. 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 What a fun movie. Yeah. All right. So who else? Oh, um, other than that, the only other people I kind of wanted to talk about are the actual 
Muppet designers and builders. So any, anyone else you wanted to discuss before we move on to like Muppet company people? Yeah, I did uh, look up uh, Brian Smithies, the special effects supervisor, presumably no relation to Alan Smithy. Um, he, I, you know, special effects supervisor, I don't know exactly what his contributions were, but we can probably assume that he had some hand in some of the, the, the puppet tricks and cool visual things that we see in the movie. And his credits, so many of these people just, their, their career spans so long. He, he worked also on Clash of the Titans. He also worked on Superman, uh, Dune, the infamous 80s failed sci-fi adaptation, uh, Goldeneye, and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Wow. Yeah. Which is one of those things where, like, I guess that movie's only 20 years later. Like, it's not it's not unthinkable that, you know, I mean, there are people who worked on Great Muppet Keeper who are still working now. That's true. Know? But somehow, that like, so many of these people worked on 60s movies that when you say Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, it's just like, whoa, that's from this century. From the you know? zeros, yeah. Yeah, it's a zeros movie. <laughs> oh, man. Good stuff. So uh, moving on then to the to the actual Muppet folks, among the Muppet designers and builders here, the, the lead Muppet designer here was Carolee Wilcox, who has like worked with the Muppets and the Jim Henson Company and Sesame Street forever. I mean, she designed Elmo. Hmm. Like if you see the first sketch of Elmo that was ever made, it has Carolee Wilcox's like it's it's in her hand. Right. Um, so that's a big deal. That like, and, and big among deal. like many, many other characters. Of course. Yeah. Um, but Muppet Wiki specifies that she prepared Piggy for the underwater scenes in this movie. Oh, okay. That's important. So that's very important. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, big, big time shout out to Carolee Wilcox. Well, I know, I know we've discussed her on the podcast before we talked about her uh, at the end of the Muppet movie, I'm sure too, but yeah. Cause she was also occasionally a puppeteer. Yeah. There's a, there's a picture on Muppet Wiki of her, uh, performing Ernie. Yeah, I think in the seventies for a while she was no, sort of, like when they needed another hand, she would jump in and be a puppeteer. Yeah, yeah. There's also a great picture on here on her Muppet Wiki page of her performing Beautiful Day Monster. Hmm. I love Beautiful Day so Monster. So that's fun. Yeah, he's great. Um yeah, look so I'm I'm looking at her page. She also built the two headed monster. She built the Yip Yip Martians. Um so she I mean really like did some <laughs> did some great characters. Yeah, those are great contributions. And right, and actually, the next puppeteer or the next puppet builder listed is Tim Miller, who was uh, the the supervisor of puppet design at the Jim Henson Company for a long time. He just died in 2019. And also, according to Muppet Wiki, the two of them, Carolee Wilcox and Tim Miller, built Gobo Fraggle together. Huh. So like <laughs> that's. It's just one of those things where we never think about that. We never think about who designed these characters or who built them. Right. And the average viewer you know, like, never ever sometimes thinks about the fact that anyone has to, like that that's anyone's job is building Muppets. But yeah, they're these super talented artists who are just working on all these characters all the time for all these years of the Muppets, uh, the peak of the Muppets success. Right. Exactly. And Go- Gobo was of course, uh, to just use Gobo again as an example, was of course designed by Michael K. Frith, who was the head Muppet designer for years and who is credited as a design consultant 
in this movie. So I'm not sure exactly what he did, but yeah, I don't know if I've ever credit. seen any sketches of his uh, in association with this movie. Well, I don't know. Like, there's no new puppets at all, right? Like, uh, I guess that's right. No, it's new just characters. all characters from the Muppet Show. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Nice to see it. N- nice to see his name. Anyway, he's he really is a legend. Yeah. Um. An- another name that jumped out at me is Leslie Ash who is still very active. She's on the board of directors of the Jim Henson foundation still. Oh, okay. So she uh, was a puppet builder and designer back on the Muppet show days. And she's, she's still, uh, she's still very active. Yeah, that's great. It's great that there's so many people who provide a sort of continuity from the classic era to today. Right. And her page on Muppet wiki, which we will link to uh, features her trimming Sweetums's toenails. So (laughs) it's great. Can't what is she it. using to do that? Is it some really big toenail clippers? Uh, it it just looks like she's like picking something off of them. Like her her hands are on Sweetums' toes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it's good. It's a good pick. And then <laughs> the other name I wanted to talk about is this person I know nothing about, but one of the credited Muppet designers and builders is named Joan Garrick. Joan Garrick. Yes. Now, Ryan, what does the name Joan Garrick mean? Joan Garrick is the the longtime wife of the Flash of DC Comics Earth 2, Jay Garrick. Yes, that's right. That is the Flash's wife from DC Comics. I had no idea the Flash's wife built Muppets. Right. the The Earth Prime, our universe's Joan Garrick is presumably still married to Jay Garrick, which is great. Good for her. Happy for them. They've been married since like 1945. And uh, she worked as a puppet designer in this movie. And I've never been happier so, about anything in my whole life. <laughs> so you think that our, our universe's version of Joan Garrick is also married to our universe's version of Jay Garrick? I guess that makes sense because her name is Garrick. Yes. Yeah. Her name isn't Williams. Right. Which is the comic book character's maiden name, which I know off the top of my head. I did not know that, but that's so nice. Yeah, so it's just nice to see her, that's all. In this or any other universe. In this or any other universe. Indeed. I was so happy when I saw that. <laughs> I actually, when I saw that, paused it, took a screenshot, circled the name Joan Garrick, and sent it immediately to both Ryan and our uh, other Tough Pigs guy johannes to be like you guys joan garrick great moment caper ah okay it's true that really happened Mm -hmm. all right so uh that that's all of the credits i wanted to talk about and and anyone else on your list right uh there's a a card for muppet technical designers which is a team headed by faz fazakas i don't know that we've ever talked about him have we i think he worked on the muppet movie but i I'm not sure. Let's talk about it. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, just concisely then. He if you if anyone anyone who has ever looked into the history of the Muppets or read up on the development of Muppets and the technology of puppetry over time knows that Faz Fazakas was very instrumental in developing uh remote controlled puppets and radio controlled versions of the Muppets to do things like allowing Emmett Otter and his ma to sing, like for for the puppets to move and lip sync while they're rowing down the river in a boat and stuff like that. So he was he sort of uh, was was very important in making the Muppets uh, become high tech as the years went on. Right, and what what's very interesting to me is, and he he lived to be 
quite old. He lived to be 95 years old, but he was born in 1918. So like, yeah, like even at the time of this movie, he's, you know, in in his early to mid sixties. So like the, it's very interesting to me that the guy who is like pushing Henson technology wise in the seventies and eighties is a guy who's, you know, 18 years older than Jim Henson. Like he's not, he's not some young guy who's like, we need to move forward. He's, he's one of the older, like senior level uh, employees at Henson at, at this time. Yeah. And it, it fascinates me that, he, that he's the guy who's developing all this new tech. I love that. I love that about him. Yeah. I guess I just have this image of him as sort of like, and I, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of him where he didn't already have gray hair, but just this, this sort of technical wizard, just always tinkering with things, trying to, trying to, figure out new technologies for the puppets. Right. And um, his, I, I think it was Duncan, yeah, Duncan Kenworthy says that Faz Fazakis was one of the inspirations for Doc on Fraggle Rock. Oh, sure. And yeah. that's why Doc is always, that's why Doc's an inventor. Cause he, cause he's Faz Fazakis. Yeah. He's a tinkerer in his workshop. Yeah. That's neat. Love that guy. I also wanted to briefly mention uh, Callista Hendrickson. I, I'm sure we talked about her last year for the Muppet movie, but we have been uh, celebrating Miss Piggy's costumes in this movie, and Callista, Hendrick- Callista Hendrickson and her team did the Muppet costumes for the movie, so they did a great job. Yes. And then Miss um, Piggy's portfolio is credited to John Barrett. He was... Oh, uh, Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, he was the go-to photographer for the Muppets for many years, and I think still occasionally does do photo shoots of Muppets for Sesame Street and maybe maybe the Muppet Show characters. Um, so he's very good at what he does. He did a lot of those like calendars and Muppet Magazine photo shoots and things. Um, yeah, if, yeah. If you've seen any of those calendar photos from the eighties or or nineties where the Muppets are posed in like movie poster parodies or magazine cover parodies. He shot all that stuff. Yeah. And it all like that those photos I think go so far towards making the Muppets feel alive in general. Like those the photos that he took seem like have so much life in them that it it would be so easy for photographs of 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 poser puppets to seem dead or lifeless. And his feel like they're actual people. It, it, on a on a photo set, I don't know. It's it's wild. He's great. Yeah, yeah. You really believe that these are the characters who you see living and breathing and and talking and dancing on your TV screen that they just walked into a photo studio and did this photo shoot, right? And then the other one I wanted to mention: there's a credit for location manager and assistant to producers, and that's Martin Baker. Uh, I don't. I forgot to check to see if this was his first Muppet credit. But he would go on to produce many, many Muppet and Henson projects, including Fraggle Rock, Labyrinth, uh, Muppet Family Christmas, The Storyteller, The Jim Henson Hour, Muppet Family Christmas, Muppet Treasure Island, Muppets from Space, Muppets Tonight, Elmo and Grouchland, Mirror Mask, Muppets Wizard of Oz, and the 2011 movie, The Muppets. So he is a guy who knows how to produce a Muppet thing. Yes. All right. Awesome. Muppets are great. Yeah. And so are the people who work with them. That's right. That's right. So I think that that brings us down to the end of talking about the actual movie, but we also wanted to take some time uh, to wrap up some other things, talk about some of the, some of the other um, effects that the movie had on, on culture and 
uh, of what people thought of it at the time. So, Ryan, I think you wanted to talk about how much money this movie made in the theaters compared to yeah. the Muppet movie. Yeah, I figured that was worth looking at. Uh, the Muppet movie was a, a big hit, which, of course, made it inevitable that this movie would be made. Uh, according to the website The Numbers, which I'm using now because Box Office Mojo is not as intuitive since they updated it a while back. Um, this movie made $31 million in theaters. Adjusted for inflation, that becomes about $102 million. So that is definitely a hit, even though it's not as big a hit as the Muppet movie. <clears throat> but any movie today that made $102 million would be, you know, that those are respectable numbers. Well, I mean, certainly a... Certainly a relatively low-budget movie like this one, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and a family movie, and yeah, so it, it did pretty well. Right. And uh, it opened on June 26th, 1981, which is the same weekend as Dragon Slayer, Stripes, and For Your Eyes Only, which is, we were just talking about James Bond movies. Wow. Yeah. I've never actually seen Dragon Slayer, but um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, a fairly stacked weekend. And I did find an Associated Press article yeah. from July 3rd, 1981, where they described that the following weekend as Hollywood's biggest weekend ever at the box office, because those movies were still in theaters, and then other movies were still in theaters, including Superman 2, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Cannonball Run. Those all came out within weeks or months of each other. And they quoted a Universal advertising executive saying... There are so many top films in the marketplace. Films like The Muppet Caper are getting the small portion of the pie. Looking back with hindsight, we probably should have huh. waited a month to get out of competition with these powerhouse films. So I guess hmm. it's possible that had they released this movie at a different time, it would have made even more money. Well, and I'm also I'm looking at the chart. It was the number 23 box office hit of the year in the United States. Okay. Do you know what The Muppet and movie was that year? Seven. Ah, yeah. So there you go. The Muppet movie was the was the number seven highest grossing movie of of 1979, which is like to me that makes me so happy that the Muppet movie was in the top ten hits of the year it came out. Oh yeah, and that then, never happened again with a with a Muppet film. Not even no, close. I'm afraid not. <laughs> but then uh, in a New York Times article a few months later, a studio executive, so a uh, Universal. Uh, the movie was made by ITC, which was Luke Grade's company, but Universal distributed distributed it, at least in the U.S. And uh, a few months later in this New York Times article, a Universal executive suggested that putting the word caper in the title of the movie was a mistake because caper movies had done poorly for several years, which is interesting. But I, I don't know that there would have been some magical alternate title that they could have given the movie that would have led to it making more money. Yeah. I think that's one of those things like uh, after the movie Mars needs moms was a flop. <laughs> Disney changed the name of John Carter of Mars to just John Carter because they decided people didn't like Mars movies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think the things that they think make sense always actually make sense. Right. Uh, I also found um, a column by, I forget what, what city's newspaper this was, um, a newspaper called The Courier-Journal, 
uh, their their critic Tom Dorsey was upset that the Muppets had abandoned TV for movies, which is funny because now I think most people's fun memories of the Muppets primarily come from the movies. But at the time, this guy was not on board with the Muppets. Oh, I think that's true of people our age who are too young for the Muppet Show. Right. You know. Yeah, where that's like, where we encountered the Muppet them. Show ended. Like, I mean, I guess. Yeah, like before our memory, the Muppet Show ended, and then the movies were were on TV all the time and very easy to find uh, to rent on video. <laughs> you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so this guy, Tom Dorsey, wrote a whole column about how the Muppets should not have ended their TV show to do movies. He said, oh, sure, we got to see Miss Piggy riding a bike. Big deal. Kermit did that in the first movie. Next, we watched her crash through a crowd on a motorcycle. Hot stuff. If we want Daredevil theatrics, we can suffer through. That's incredible. And la-dee-da, Miss Piggy even hoofed her way through a Ginger (laughs) Rogers-type dance routine with a bunch of swells and top hats and tails. Hey, if we feel like slumming it down at the disco, we can wow. always tune in the gyrating weirdos on Dance Fever. And watching Miss Tubbo <laughs> lollygag around in the oh, water, no. imitating one of those old Esther Williams aquatic extravaganzas wasn't exactly a thrill either. So she makes a splash as big as a cannonball. So what? Just gimmicks, that's all they are. Henson has had the wool yanked over his eyes. The shine will soon tarnish on cute mechanical movie tricks. Folks will tire of Muppet gadgetry. Henson will need to return to his roots. And then he goes on to conclude that he is not looking forward to the Dark Crystal either. (laughs) So uh, Tom Dorsey of the Louisville, Kentucky Career Journal. That's it. I looked it up. Yeah, uh, he, he really has some opinions, huh? about this and yeah to paraphrase kermit in the peter falk scene it's amazing that everything he said was wrong it's true and uh the ending of that story is that tom dorsey was fired from the louisville kentucky courier journal in 2008 so oh for what any nefarious reasons for for his bad review of letters to santa um (laughs) no no it just sounds like he was just old and unpopular now like his he was he had just run his course after, happen. after 30 years or whatever. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of opinions, um, do you want to move on to reviews? Yeah. So what else did you find for reviews uh, of the movie at the time? I found a handful of things from the time. Yeah. The, the, most of them were sort of neutral to positive. There weren't a lot of raves. Roger Ebert gave it two out of four stars. I know. Thought, I know Roger, yeah. I was going to I was going to say that I know Roger Ebert didn't like it very much. Yeah, he said the Muppets were dumped into a caper plot that failed to take advantage of the characters' personalities. And he said, The lack of a cutting edge hurts this movie. It's too nice, too routine, too predictable, and too safe. I don't know that I would use any of those adjectives to describe this movie myself, but uh, that was Ebert's opinion. Yeah, I love Roger, of course. One of my heroes. You know, like Yeah, mine too. Anytime that I watch a movie that that came, anytime I watch a movie that came out during his career, I like almost always go read his review yep. immediately. But uh, he's not. I, I don't always agree with him, and I definitely don't agree with him on that one. So, yeah, especially because if anything, I feel like this movie has more of an edge than the Muppet movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, in the Washington Post, Judith Martin said it was a sloppy pastiche of movie plots 
Uh, she said the musical numbers were well done, but she seemed to be generally annoyed by all the self-aware jokes in the movie. Well, I, I certainly understand that. Like, I, I think you're either on, like, I think that all the meta jokes in this are either on your wavelength or they're not. And if they're not, I can see it becoming insufferable. <laughs> right. Because if, if you're not on board with the earliest examples of those kinds of winking at the audience jokes in the beginning, then you're going to really probably be very frustrated by the end of it. Right. Uh, then Vincent Canby in the New York Times, he seemed to like it mostly. He said, for the most part, the Great Muppet Caper keeps its whimsy well-disciplined. He referred to the John Cleese scene as super funny. He actually used the word super funny, which kind of feels ahead of its time to me. And he said, the movie contains several more cheery Disney-esque songs than are necessary, but they are made tolerable by the presence of Kermit and Miss Piggy and by a lot of dialogue that recalls the A.A. A. Milne Winnie the Pooh stories. I can definitely see that, the, the, the Winnie the Pooh point. I mean, some of the, like, you know, what color are their hands now kind of stuff. I guess so. It's like very kind of like agreeably dumb characters. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean I can I can definitely see it. The specific example Less so he, but the songs being Disney esque. Yeah, I, that seems like it's sort of a little bit of lazy shorthand for just sort of musical theater style by that point. Right. But yeah, the example he cited for the AAML thing was the I wonder how far you could plummet joke from the hot air balloon at the beginning, although he incorrectly attributed it to Fozzie. Yeah. And then sure. I looked, but no, yeah, that that is a good example of that. Yeah, and then I looked around on the internet to see if I could find any um, amusing negative reviews from just regular old users in recent years. I didn't really find a lot, but I did see one uh, one star review on Letterboxd that just said, "Passable filmmaking doesn't stop this from being even more boring than Grown Ups Two." All right. I can't imagine a harsher criticism than saying it's more boring than Grown Ups 2. Well, I haven't seen Grown Ups 2, so maybe well, Grown Ups okay, 2 full is disclosure, neither good. Way. Could be, could be. So you don't know, man. You don't know Grown Ups 2. It's true. Well, I guess I should, yeah, all right. I'm... You think that the lack of Rob Schneider has really hurt Grown Ups 2 compared to Grown Ups 1? Oh, is what? that the one he's not in because he and Adam Sandler had some kind of falling out? Yeah. Well, he's not in The Great Muppet Caper anyway. So. No, but he's in Mubs from Space. Oh, that's true. Crazy. <laughs> yep. All right. So, um, is 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 that all you had for reviews? That's all I have about reviews. So, you want to talk about Universal Studios for a little while? Yeah, this was just another fun little tidbit I found, and I guess they still do stuff like this now. But uh, around the time the movie came out, there was an exhibition at Universal Studios in Hollywood. There was an ad for it that says, Kermit, Fozzie, and Gonzo are at it again. Right here at Universal. Still searching for the great baseball diamond. And it's here, too. See for yourself. See your favorite Muppets and props and film clips from their latest movie, The Great Muppet Caper. And then also in that same ad, it mentions that they have a, a band playing at Universal called American Zoot Band, but there's seemingly no relation to the Muppet. Huh. Bizarre. But it would be pretty cool to see the baseball diamond in person. Yeah, man, I'd go see it. I'd go yeah. back in time and see it. Yeah, and it sounds like there were also puppets and other cool props and things. So Yeah, here's what we should do. We should go back in time, go to that exhibit, go to the Muppet Stuff store in New York City, and yeah, then that just come did, back here. That was open by then, right? 1981? Yeah, 
1980 was the year it opened. Oh, perfect. So, I mean, you have to travel coast to coast to make those two stops, but maybe we can travel through time and space. Right. Yeah, but it was also mu- like it was much easier to fly on an airplane back then. Yeah, you could just waltz right through security. Right. So we'll have no problem. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't care what you had in Good your suitcase. Plan. You could have a you could have a harpoon gun, a computer deprogrammer, <laughs> hot mustard. Yeah, man, you can bring it all. Yeah, but and if anyone by any chance uh, happened to have seen that exhibition at Universal Studios in 1981, we'd love to hear about it. Yes, for sure. So then, finally, um, we wanted to talk a little bit. I mean, we've mentioned this on the show before, but we wanted to talk about the making of book. Uh, the Great Muppet Caper, The Making of the Masterpiece by Ellis Weiner, which is the fake behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> like, it's not really a coffee table book. I mean, it's a paperback. It's it's pretty, it's probably 100 pages. Um, but it's about the making of The Great Muppet Caper, and it's all made up, and it's all nonsense. <laughs> like, yes. it's it's like its own thing. Like, it's not, so much of it is just stuff that, like, has nothing to do with the movie and it's just like jokes about like, you know, movie studio backstage dealing shenanigans kind of stuff. Yeah, there's it's a lot of such like, a weird book. Movie and I'm titles so glad that I have a copy. Absolutely, and I I do wonder if anyone, <laughs> any kid who got this book when the movie came out, felt a little bit cheated because it is not actually about the making of the Great Muppet Caper at all. But to me, it you get so much more bang for your buck with this because like. Anything in this book that that could be a ridiculous joke is turned into a ridiculous joke. Right. Yeah, it's great. Um, and it's I I think like at least last time I looked, it was it's relatively cheap online. I mean, there's a lot of yeah, copies you, floating around. You can find it on eBay periodically or from Amazon sellers. Yeah. So I really would. I mean, anyone who who likes this movie, the sense of humor is very similar. And if you liked Miss Piggy's Guide to Life. From around the same time, it's it's a kind of similar feeling. Um, and actually, Henry Beard, who wrote Miss Piggy's Guide to Life, and Ellis Weiner, who wrote this book, worked at National Lampoon together. So um, I don't know if there's any any connection to why Ellis Weiner got this job. You know, I don't know if there was some some Henry Beard connection, but uh, their their sensibility is very similar. Yeah, it's that's not not surprising at all that they both worked for National Lampoon. Um, but right. I, yeah, I did want to just cite a few things from the book because when i when we first started doing this season of the podcast i was going through various things like i looked at the brian j jones jim henson uh biography and i went through the jim henson's red book blog uh, curated by karen falk and you know just looking for behind the scenes things that we could mention on this podcast and then i read through this book again and i was reminded that there's actually no real information in it but it's very entertaining. In the introduction, uh, the author describes the Great Muppet Caper this way. It's not only great art, great arty art, the kind that makes you swoon and gasp and fall down. It's great entertainment. Grady great movie-ish movie fun. A lark, an eagle, a goose. <laughs> and in the fictionalized uh, reality of, of the production, the so I, all of these names i think are like mad magazine style spoofs of real people the screenwriter is salton pepper which i think is a riff on dalton trumbo i suppose so yeah 
The director is Steven Spielberg, which of course sounds like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> well, uh, the song well, it's like it's it's one. The thing about Steven Spielberg is that when you yes. say it out loud, it sounds like Steven Spielberg, but on paper, it doesn't look like Steven Spielberg. So it's like a much more labored joke on paper, which <laughs> yes. makes it, which kind of makes it even funnier to me that I, like they went with such a stretch. Yes, I think it makes it funnier. The songs are by Jack Relaxo, which I think is actually an attempt at a direct spoof on Joe Raposo's name. Joe Raposo, yeah, for sure. Uh, but then the producer is Raving Stork, and I can't figure out who that is supposed to be a spoof of. A raving, raving stork. Stork. Is there a Raymond something or a Raven somebody? Yeah, I don't know. In old Hollywood, maybe. Probably. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, if anyone I don't has get any that theories, <laughs> yeah, if anyone has any theories, let us know. But yes, yeah, like there's a whole page explaining how they did the bicycle sequence, and it says uh, Kermit and Piggy didn't know how to ride bikes, so they had to suspend them from the studio ceiling with wires. While they pretended to pedal bikes, and then they composited in stop-motion footage of bicycles with a background consisting of computer simulations, rear-projected hand-painted slides, and crew members running around holding photos of Yosemite National Park. (laughs) And then in the section about the editing process, they talk about how the filmmakers had to cut a scene where a little girl who is possessed by Satan suddenly appears in the Dubani Club sequence and begins to dance with Kermit. Because they decided that sequence obstructed the dramatic flow. Awesome. So those are just a few examples of how preposterous this book is. So if you can find it yeah. online, I would recommend it, you know, checking it out. It's so silly. It's great, and I love it. Me too. All right. So that like that that's all I have on my list. So that uh, for me at least that closes the book on the Great Muppet Caper. How about you, Ryan? Anything else to add? Uh, my book is almost closed. I still have a few things in the appendix. All right, hit me. So, so uh, alert listener Eric posted on the Tough Picks forum uh, a fun story about when they the the cast and crew were shooting the Mallory Gallery exteriors, which this was this came from Dave Goles uh, telling the story at a screening of the movie a few years ago in San Francisco. He said it was the middle of the night when they shot that. All the puppeteers were arranged on a dolly, and they had kind of gotten all the the puppeteers exactly where they needed to be, so their characters were exactly where they needed to be in the shot. And then it started raining. They didn't want to get out of the formation because it took so long to set up, so they covered all the puppeteers with a tarp while it's raining. So Dave Gold said, we're under this tarp, and I got into a conversation with Fozzie. Frank was next to me, and so I get into this conversation with Fozzie, and it was really fun. The stupid talk we had about nothing, and I can't remember any of it, but it was just great fun to be there in the rain, covered with a tarp, talking to Fozzie Bear. Uh, that's great. That does sound like fun, doesn't it? Of course, yeah. I cannot even imagine. I would die. I would be dead if I got to have a conversation with Fozzie Bear. Absolutely. Whether it's under a tarp in the rain or not. Right. There you go. And then I wanted to bring up uh, a quote from Diana Rigg that I forgot to mention earlier in the movie. Uh, She did a random roles interview on the AV club with Stephen Bowie a few years ago. And she told this story. 
She said, I did the film and Charles Grodin was in it as well. I don't know what was going on, something technical, and Charles and I were in the scene with Miss Piggy and we had to do take after take after take. And finally, Charles said to me under his breath, bet you never thought you'd be doing 15 takes for a puppet. <laughs> and I will bleep that later. Sure, yeah, yeah. Wow, so my best guess wow. is that that was probably wow. the scene where they find the necklace in Piggy's pocket. Yeah, I bet so, yeah. That seems like something where both of those actors would have had to be in the shot the whole time. Yeah, right. That makes sense. huh? Yeah. And it's, it's technical. Yeah, exactly. Well. And then finally, um, we, we've asked our guests about their history with the movie. I think it's obvious that we both rank this number one on our list. <clears throat> but one... Yeah, uh, man. Yeah, number one. Probably, I, I, don't, I don't see myself ever changing my opinion at this point. No, I mean, either, probably. But yeah, just one little potentially boring anecdote from my childhood watching this movie. When I was a kid, I had a copy of this that my parents had taped off TV. And at some point, as a dumb kid who wasn't really allowed to use the VCR, I was watching some kind of show that I think was an educational show on PBS. And I decided that I would like to tape this show I was watching so I could watch it again later. So I just... <clears throat> pressed the record button on the VCR without actually thinking what I was about what I was doing or what tape might be in the VCR. And then I think after a few minutes, my mom came in to stop it. But for years, the only version of this movie I had access to was missing most of the lady, the, the sequence in lady holiday's office, because instead it would cut to this weird educational thing with a robot with a Victrola for a head teaching a little girl to sing London Bridge is falling down. <laughs> and you and you've never figured out what it is? No, you know I've looked for it. I've I've googled it. I should go on one of those like the tip of my tongue subreddit on Reddit to see if anyone might be able to identify it, but no, I have no idea what it was. Yeah, cuz that's that's such a distinctive image. Like Yeah. It seems like a thing that either it seems like a thing that either doesn't exist or would be easy to identify. Yeah. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, I don't think my original childhood copy of that tape still exists since I've bought it in several other yeah. formats. But yeah, so that's my history. But you with got the rid of it when you got when you got a free watch. You got rid of the uh, taped from TV version. Did you say get a free watch? Yes, I said get a free watch. I'm glad you said get a free watch. I love to get a free watch. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that that's just about the best possible place to stop. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone, that that we're done now for The Great Muppet Caper. We will be back in the future. We will be together again, if you will, to talk about Muppets Take Manhattan. Nice. After, after a break. And I think we'll do some bonus episodes in between. So listen for those. I think we know what the first of those bonus episodes is going to be, don't we? I believe our first bonus episode is going to be Muppets Go to the Movies. A it's great. great, brilliant TV special uh, that's kind of like the series finale for The Muppet Show and was produced as a tie-in for this movie. So we'll, we'll be back with that one in a little while. And uh, then eventually we will... Uh, you we're we're not saying goodbye because we'll be doing Mubs Take Manhattan <laughs> before you know it. Yeah, I know you're about to do the social medias and Twitters and everything. We do. I should mention we have an email address now, especially for this podcast, 
So if you have any oh, yeah. uh, questions, comments, maybe you have something you want to say about a scene coming up in Muppets Take Manhattan, uh, th- so you can write to us at movingrightalong at toughpigs.com, and maybe we will read a couple of those on the podcast. Who knows? Or just if you want to write to us and complain about uh, something we got wrong, go for it. Moving right along at toughpigs.com. Yeah. Great. Cannot wait to read the feedback. All right. So, uh, but yeah, you can always read toughpigs.com on the internet. We're doing a bunch of reviews of weird old Sesame Street episodes right now. Um, so check those out. We're pretty proud of those. And uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're all over the place. Our theme music is by Stacy Rosen. And our logo was designed by Morgan Davey. Thank you to both of them. And uh, now, at the end of the season, would be the perfect time to give us that positive review on iTunes or other podcatcher that you've been meaning to do and haven't done yet. And, uh, you know, also a great time to tell everyone you've ever met that you love the podcast moving right along and think that they should listen to it. Especially now that we've covered the entire movie. That's right. We're done with this movie. So uh, thanks again for listening. And to our fans, we're going to always love you. See you. See you next movie. See you later.